Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Lem to say hello and welcome to Changes. Hello, Annie McNamara. Oh, God. Sorry. Can I do that again? Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> it's only written on big letters on my screen. <laughs> I mean, I know who you are, obviously. I mean, that. But that I've changed be... my name, haven't I? I've kind well, of. Had, but I haven't changed my name. I've just started using my, my full name again. And yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful. Do you know, I thought my name was Norman for the first 15 years of my life. I do. Yeah, I and, do. and my name's always been Lem Sissay. So I say, no, I, I've not changed my name. I've just gone to the name that I always had. Reclaimed your name. Yeah, man. Anybody who reclaims a name, there's a story. Hello and welcome to Changes with me, Annie McManus. It's great to have you with us. Last Friday, it was Care Day the world's largest celebration of the successes and achievements of children and young people with experience of care. So for this week, it felt very apt to speak to Lem Sisse. Lem Sisse is a poet, playwright, broadcaster and speaker. And crucially, with Friday in mind, he is a man who went through the care system. He was born to Ethiopian parents and stolen from his own mother as a baby by the social services. At the age of 12, the foster family he lived with in Lancashire, who he had come to know as his own, rejected him and sent him away. And from then, he was moved from one institution to the next, going through five different institutions in all, until he was 17 years old. As an adult, he was given access to the psychologist's report about his early life, which he used to turn into a show called The Report in 2017. This detailed his experience with social services, foster homes, abuse and his psychiatric diagnosis, including post-traumatic stress and alcohol dependency. In 2018, he sued Wigan Council for the treatment he suffered when in care, receiving a settlement and, importantly for Lem, a full apology. His unforgettable memoir, My Name Is Why, was published in 2019 and it details all of this. Lem is now a BAFTA-nominated international prize-winning writer. He was awarded an MBE for Services to Literature, the Penn Pinter Prize in 2019, and a Points of Light Award from the Prime Minister. Last year, he was appointed an OBE in the 2021 Birthday Honours for Services to Literature and Charity. He was the official poet for the 2012 Olympics. In 2014, he was appointed as a Fellow of the Foundling Museum, and he has been Chancellor of the University of Manchester since 2015. He's been on the Booker Prize judging panel. The awards, achievements and accolades are endless. His poetry has inspired countless people and can be found in hospitals, galleries and the side of buildings, from the Royal Children's Hospital to the Turner Art Gallery in Margate, the Royal Festival Hall of London to the streets of Manchester. Keep your eyes peeled. Lem Sisse's words are everywhere. Lem has now met his birth mother and he talks us through this journey to her in great detail in this episode. I'll never forget this conversation. It will stay with me forever. Uh, The way that Lem talks, the way that he sees the world is so beautiful and so unique 
and I felt really honoured and grateful to him for his openness and vulnerability in telling us about his story. He is quite simply a phenomenal human being. So it goes without saying that this is an emotional conversation and if you are concerned that any of the topics mentioned could be upsetting for you, please check the show notes for full details of what we cover before listening. But for now, let's go to an extraordinary listen from an extraordinary guest. Enter the podcast, Lem Sisse. There's a book that you have out called My Name Is Why, which um, I just devoured and everyone listening to this should read it. On the back of the book, it kind of uh, asks the question, how does a government steal a child and then imprison him? How does it keep it a secret? How does it, Lem? How does it for those who have no idea of your story? It keeps it a secret by isolating a woman, a pregnant woman. Let's let's put it like that. Mm. So the pregnant woman who was pregnant in England was put into a mother and baby home uh, in the north of England. And my mum just came here for a short period of time to stud study, found herself pregnant. The people at the college, obviously in the 60s, a pregnant single mother was like a threat to the church and state. So they, they sent her to the north of England, connected her with a social worker, with her mother and baby home, which was run by nuns and organised by the the Liverpool Board of Moral Welfare. And so she was sent to the north of England from Oxfordshire into this mother and baby home where there were a lot of Irish women in that home. And I know that because one of them contacted me after I made a documentary and said that she was a mother in that home and she was sat next to my mother. My mother was in the mother and baby home and the social worker's job, working in tandem with the nuns, and I'm not blaming either of them, was to get those women to sign the adoption papers when they were at their most vulnerable, on the bridge between childhood and adulthood. Mm. And my mum refused to sign the adoption papers, so the social worker gave me to foster parents, which is what my mother wanted while she was studying, But he said to the foster parents, treat this as an adoption is yours forever. Now, the secrets in this place are not just in my mother's story, but they're also in all of those other women's stories. The idea was that a woman being pregnant with a child without uh, a partner was something that had to be kept secret in society. And so this was the society's way of doing that. And many of us know about those mother and baby homes because we didn't talk about them. And many of us, not the nuns or the social workers, many of us are at fault because we, we knew what was going on in those places, but we, we, mm. we turned a blind eye. Mm. And, and in fact, those social workers and the nuns, they were doing our bidding. It was our prejudice on our terraced house streets our semi-detached, detached houses. It was us that thought of women who were pregnant without a, a husband as being a threat. And I think it's the same now today where the way we, we think of women who are in addiction. You know, right. the way we think about women who are signing on, who've not yeah. got a job. We do the same sort of curtain-twitching, judgmental, emotional violence that we put on those women... And we want them off our streets. We want them not to be in our, our sight lines. Mm. And that's how mm. secrets are made. So I was then 
fostered for 12 years. Then the foster family who said that they were my family forever put me into children's homes. And then I was released at 17 and a half from a series of children's homes, including a virtual prison. And the way that secrets are held is every two weeks of my life, from before I was born actually, every two weeks since my conception, a report was written about me via a social worker or a residential social worker, etc. A little note on my development and on decisions that they made. That's for my whole entire childhood, from conception to 18. And we can read those reports in this book, and it's, it's incredibly powerful to read these people's versions of you. Um, and that was one of the things I was really interested to ask you about, Lem, is, is this idea of you, your life being a kind of story told by different people. Um, other people's memories formalised in these reports and assessments making up the story of your life. And we see those reports and assessments throughout this book alongside with your own personal, obviously, memories. Mm. How did you find your real story within these other people's versions of events? Well, like all of us, I think, anyway, I'm living proof of my own real story. Nobody knows my own real story from my perspective. Nobody knows your real story from your perspective, Annie, Mm. because you you have events that have happened in your life become part of the, the you of who you are, right? And actually... You know, you might assume that people will know that, you know, when you uh, ran away when you were 12, that that was a seminal moment in the making of you. Mm. You know what? They don't know. I had to prove my story against this systematic, institutionalised recording of who I was. And I felt mm. like that was really important. In normal terms, people prove who they are relative to a family memory to to, to the memory of your mum has of you or your dad has you and you're like you know I'm not that I'm this I'm not that I'm this yeah I'm a little bit of that and I'm a little bit this (laughs) you know Mm. and that echo that you have back with your family however far away from them you are um, becomes like the echo location that kind of charts in a sort of architecture you and your family around you Uh, yeah, I like that idea of emotional echolocation. Yeah. And, and I didn't have that, you see. I didn't have yeah. it. So if my, my echo would just keep going, keep going. There was no bounce back. There was no body. And that's why I did this book relative to my childhood and the files that had been written about me because that was my only bounce back from echolocation. You speak of poetry as evidence of being alive. Um, Tell us about that first poem you wrote in your first day at Woodfield's Children's Home. Oh, wow. Yeah, when I went to the children's home for the first time at 12 years of age, I I wrote poetry because, well, it just made me feel centred. It centred me. I just remember the feeling that it gave me. And the feeling it gave me is that you're not crazy. This really is happening you're writing it down on paper so that you can see that it's happening to you and that it's not your imagination, you've not fallen head over heels into a dream slash nightmare. You are a real person and this is really happening. And it was when I went into children's homes at 12 
from the life that I'd known with my foster parents. It's all I'd ever known. And, 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 and I didn't realise that writing a poem w was doing that, but that is exactly what it was doing. Maybe this is a good time for you to tell us your first change, your childhood change. And this is a kind of physical journey that you took. Yes, it is. The big change for me is when I travelled from the foster parents to the children's homes. I, you just imagine your own child losing everything that they're relative to tomorrow. So, yeah. you know, their, their first school, their friends, their, just their everything. Their, their siblings. Siblings, yeah, siblings and um, grandparents and, and, and aunties and uncles. And, like, just losing them all in a, in a New York minute. That is what happened on that journey as I, as I left the foster parents' house. The parents who said they were my parents forever, I was driven away from them and away from everything that I'd ever known. I, I, you know, I saw the streets and the, you know, the butcher, the baker and the candlestick maker, the places that I used to go to, the market street, uh, the market, the town, the church, and the cars, the parks, the school, the car passed all of those things that had been relative to me, that I, I felt safe around, that I knew were mine, and into this other world of streets with names that I didn't know, of of landscapes that I'd never seen before, colours, uh, just everything was new, and I, th I think we all we all experience this dislocation with what we've known somehow, whether it's going to university, whether it's your going on holiday, <laughs> whether it's uh, the first time you live on your own away from your parents, whether it's going to a funeral of a family member and you, you look at the areas, the town that you've always known and see it all differently. But all of that sort of cascade of memory, yeah. of, of loss, was was outside of the car. The car was driving through through and beyond everything that I'd ever known into a world which was greyer, which was more threatening, which was had foreboding uh, in it. Um, so so, so the, it, it is the journey from the foster parents to the children's home that I remember as being the greatest change. And actually a lot of people who've been in care it's the journey that they remember. And Samantha Morton, who was in children's yes. homes, great yes. actor, the BAFTA winning actor, mm -hmm. she made a couple of films for Channel 4 and it, that, that you could see those, those journeys of the child in the car being really pivotal. So you get to the children's home and, you know, this is the beginning of a whole new era in your life. Your whole teens, you're kind of moved from home to home. And you also take on a kind of, maybe it's, maybe it's not taking on, I don't know, you can tell me, Lem, like this new iteration of you, which is chalky white. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, the thing is, the thing is, like, I, I, when I was with the foster parents, and like, ever since, you see it in my files, you know, it says, it talks about this bright spark of an intelligent child. 
yeah. right? Who who uh, <laughs> who likes attention? I mean, the truth is, is that all children like attention, um, and what I mean by that is a shy child is drawing attention to themselves by being shy. You know, they 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 actually have a way of connecting to the world and, and and that's it i think anyway that's that's my my, my theory yeah we yeah. try to control the environment around us in some way and i used to do it by by honestly by having a laugh um and i, I didn't realize when i was with the foster parents that that they used that against me that my propensity to want to make people feel at ease around me was something that they saw as a threat to the house mm. and a threat to God, and it frightened them. And my friend says to me, Lem, your, 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 your light shone too bright. It was blinding. That, that's not to big myself up, by the way, and it's not to sort not of, at all. you know, <laughs> it's... Anyway. Talking about how you were just trying to be you, you were just figuring out who you are, which is what any child does. And then you see that in a really extreme way, and it's distressing reading the reports because they, they're speaking of you like you're some sort of a product. It's, yeah. it's so mad. And, and like everything they're describing from you kind of being confused or angry or you know wanting to not wanting to take part in stuff or like that's fucking adolescence yeah, that's yeah. that's puberty that's that's all these changes you're going through so it, it feels like this whole time you're kind of the only person that is out for you to try and defend yourself is you and you yeah. are constantly having to defend your own behavior when you don't really understand it uh, I, because no one does when they're a teenager. It's complete. It's a complete time of complete flux. Annie, Annie, I knew. Okay, let let me just tell you this now, right? I knew that they didn't know what they were doing. I knew it. I How knew. did you know? I just because of the situation I was in. I was like, hold on a minute, folks. You're acting as if I'm intrinsically bad. I'm not. Why are you yes, judging but here's me? The thing, Why are you? Here's the thing. How did you not believe them? This is what I'm well, so I'm so in awe of yeah. you all the way through. How did you dream bigger? How Look, did you see more for yourself than how they saw for you? Here's the thing. Here's the weirdest thing, I think, anyway. A lot of young people are in care because of parents' dysfunction towards them. But the only place they've got to run away from care for, a place where they are judged as well, right? In the same way you're seeing the way I was judged. Mm. A lot of mm. kids in care who are judged in the same way. By the way, there are a lot of kids in care who get great service. This isn't about them. This is about the ones who don't. Where do they run away to when they run away from the children's home or from foster parents? They run away back to the parents because it's the only home they've known who were the reason why they went into care in the first place. Now, I hope that makes sense. It does, yeah, it really does. Now, the thing is, I didn't have anybody to run away to. So I was fully aware that the be-all and the end-all of me was with those people who were supposed to be looking after me with care. So I had nowhere else to go. And I had nowhere else for the people who were in the children's homes to, to blame. They could say, well, your mother should have done this or your father should have done this or, you know... Mm. X, Y and Z. I didn't have that because there was nobody. So the book stopped with them and the book stopped with me and I could look them in the eye and say, I know you're not doing your best with me. And I, and I, I saw the structure of the care system as one that de- was dependent 
on whether I do something right or wrong. And this is the trap because children always do things that are right or wrong on an hourly basis. But if you judge them with a bias on that, then what you're saying is that your system of love is based on me washing the pots or is based on me not being on the punishment list. And that's not what care is and that's not what love is. You know, most of the people who steal from shops... They're not children in children's homes. They're your children. But you don't send the, get the police in. But if a child in a children's home who's had trauma or who's foster care and does something, quote, wrong, the police are called. That's what criminalisation is. That is why... And that is relativity. So you're like, oh, if I do something wrong, I'm seen. Now, when I was in care, I could see how almost happy some of the staff were when something went wrong because when something went wrong they understood their position what to do what they to understood do. their position and this is the same with the mother and baby homes it's the same with social work in general and to a degree policing the point is is what do you do when something's right they could not hug the child they didn't know how to compliment us so I was aware of a system that was not built for me. And so slowly but surely, you can see it in the book, I know that they're going to lock me up. And there's nothing I can do about it because that's who they are. Oh, and I knew that at the time. You fight so hard, though. You know, you try and get a job in your teens. You oh, friend someone local. You, you start making money for yourself. But yep. they say that that money isn't... You need to be paying it back into the system. You're like 16 years old. Yeah, they even get, question uh, where I get my money from. They're like, why has he got uh, so much money? You know, they, they don't say to me, well done. You know, he's got himself a job. He's out there. He's, he's enterprising, mm. you know, etc." They're like, okay, where's he got his money from? Even though they know where I got my money from. I mean... Mm. You know, it's, I think there's a prejudice against children in care or children who are not with a classic family structure. I really do. I really, really do. And it happens on our housing estates and our, our um, you know, our little towns and villages. Uh, our judgmental nature about children in care and the children's home as if they're a threat. Yeah. Um, it's evident in those files. Yeah. At 17 years old, you were finally given... A chance to see your birth certificate. Yeah. Annie, they had to give me my birth certificate. It was a legal obligation. What they should have done when I left care was give my birth certificate and all those details to a responsible adult, you know, who was looking after me. There was none. So the only person they could give the birth certificate to was me. And what did you discover on there? My name. I discovered my name, Lem Sisse, and I discovered my mother's name, Yemarshet Sisse. When I got that birth certificate, I was like, thank you. So you've been calling me Norman Mark Greenwood all of my uh, life. And now I find out, as a legal obligation, you have to tell me that my name's Lemsis A. I have proof here in my hand, in my birth certificate, that something wrong happened. I don't know what it is, but there's the proof. That, that, there's the proof. Somebody's not told me something. So I have to pull that thread. Uh, it took a long time. But um, my name was Norman. 
uh, I thought my name was Norman because that's the name the social worker had given me. Mark was the name the foster parents gave me. And Greenwood was their last name. I was Norman Mark Greenwood, Christian Baptist, goes to church on a Sunday, you know, just listens to this, like, it's like a massive wave formation crashing on the sort of beach of spirituality, rock of ages. Rock of ages, rock of it, and you know the the harmonies that like rattle around this uh, Baptist church. I loved it, and you could say that my love of language is rooted and my in in that formative experience in my first twelve years. But here's the thing, and it is kind of beautiful because I do sometimes wonder how we become what we become. When my foster parents left me and said they'd never speak to me again or never never visit me in the children's home at 12, after telling me they were my parents forever, after I'd lost everything, after I'd left the care system which imprisoned me and bullied me, like just did horrible things, after I left the care system at 17, I started the search for my mother. And I found my mother at 21, but even then I didn't know. And then at 29 years of age, and I get my name, Lem Sisay, when I leave the children's home. Mm. At 29 years of age, I go to Ethiopia for the first time to find my father's side of the family. It's then that somebody said to me, how do I spell your name, Lem? I said, it's spelt L-E-M-N. And uh, they say, um, Lemen. And the person says to me, do you know what your name means? It means why. The question, why. Nobody calls their child why. Nobody in Ethiopia. That is what your name is. Why. So go right back now to when I was 18 or when I was 12 writing that poem in the children's home. You could not have a more perfect name for a poet than the question why. It's like the some question, sort of prophecy. Why? It's like a prophecy of your mom. It's it's just mad. And, be, it? and that now I'm known in Ethiopia and I'm known to Ethiopians. You know, I'm the poet whose name is Y, who found his way back home. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
There's a line in the book where you talk of your foster parents. You say they stole the memory of me from me. That's right, though. That's right. They they knew that by telling me that I could never come to their house or by telling me that they would never visit me, that I realised that they'd gone back to the family and said, Norman has left us. That was their narrative. Norman yeah, they has left us. You. They tricked Norman you. has left us and don't be in touch with him because I knew I had such a big family and I was so in love with them all and they were so in love with me but nobody contacted me, not my granddads or grandmas or, uh, and cousins and stuff and I know that they'd been told not to contact me. Now, you ask, you know, before like, how did I know about the children's home had done something wrong? By virtue of the fact that nobody was contacting me, I knew that my family must have been told not to contact me because I just, I was so alive with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that meant that I started to realise that family at base is a set of stories between one group of people shared, debated and argued about over a lifetime. And the only reason I knew that that was what family is about, birthdays, Christmases, they're all the writing of the story. We are family. We are here. If you don't turn up to an event, to a funeral, you know, family members like, why are you writing yourself out of our story? Mm. You know, you have to come back for these moments of recognition. That's all they are. You're you now. Do you remember when you were 14? Do you remember when you got that present? Do you remember when you fell out with your sister? Do you remember when you mm. went to that holiday? Do you remember, have you got the photographs from that thing? Because I've lost all my photographs. Um, do you remember when mum used to make that thing that we didn't like and that we used to eat on a Sunday, but we tell her we had to tell her we liked it. And then one time our dad said X, Y, Z. He didn't like it and we all laughed, but mum wasn't laughing. And then dun, dun, dun. These little connections are the formulation of memory and relativity. And the only reason I knew how important they are is because I didn't have them. Yeah. So I think sometimes you can understand how important something is only when you've not got it. You realise when, I'm sorry to say, but when a parent dies as you get older, because we all become orphans most of the time if, if life works out as it should, yeah. It's then that you start to realise, I've not got that person to hold on to that memory of me. Yeah, so you're losing part of yourself in them dying. Most, most people have to wait till they are older for their parents to die. Not all the time, but that's the way that, society, that's the way that humans have been built, that we're emotionally mm. ready the older we get. Children in care get that in their teenage years. All of that happened on that journey from me leaving that house, going towards that, that children's home. It was like a lifetime of trauma and shock and loss was flashing past that window saying, you're going to have this now, Lem, and you're not going to know how to handle it. And it is going to hurt immensely. And there's going to be no purchase nothing to hold you in place there'll be you're not old enough to have had children's to have been married to have a partner to have blah but you've lost them all then this is what happens to people when they're older age in life and you're going to get that now and not only you're going to get that now nobody's going to understand how big that is because they've not got there yet you were told Again, another story you were told by the Greenwoods. 
um, that your mother didn't want you. Yeah. And then eventually you found out that that was a lie. Can you tell us about that moment, please, Len, when you when you discovered this letter from your mum? Oh, my gosh, yeah. The social worker, you know, first we've got to establish that, that this is about people isolating women who are pregnant and yep. then telling everybody else that she didn't want the baby. So that's often what happens with adopted children. They're told that your mother didn't want, want you. Just, just have a little think about that for a minute. If, especially if you've had a child yourself. A lot of women who have their baby, not, not all, but a lot of women, there would, would have been a time that they were thinking, oh, do you know what, I don't, I don't know whether I want to be pregnant or not. I don't know whether I want to go through this. I don't know what's going to happen to my future. But we don't admit that as we have the child and we go on to live our life, etc. It's the apple of your eye. But there are not many women that you know who were just like, do you know what, I didn't want my baby and I just got it adopted. Yeah. There's just, I mean, there's, there's hardly any. There's always circumstance. There's well, the, always a circumstance, yeah, it yeah. seems. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but the lobby in society quite often is, is your mother didn't want you. She, mm. couldn't, she couldn't handle you. She couldn't um, cope because she didn't have enough money. Well, I tell you what, there are lots of other options that the social services could have taken to enable a woman to have her child for the rest of her life. They could have had the child fostered and they could have had the mother visit and they could have waited for the mother because we get through all these horrible stages of our lives. But the easiest narrative for a child to believe is that their mother didn't want them and the foster parents saved them and the adopting parents saved them. So it becomes a shorthand, a kind of an emotional shortcut mm. that will only become negative if the child dares to threaten that narrative. Because if families are made up of stories, just simple stories, if that's what family's made of, then an adopted or a foster child saying, I'd like to find my mother to see what happened, that ruins everything. <laughs> that actually makes the whole house of cards fall apart. Mm. Because true love is, is, do you know what? I think your mother loved you, but actually felt that this was the better thing for you. Yeah. You know, women who give their children away for, for adoption should be seen in society as heroines because yeah. your child will love you regardless of whether you even feed it or not. It's your child. But for a woman to, to give that child away and say, look, I, I want this child adopted because I want it to have a better life, that should be seen as one of the most heroic things that a person can do in society. The thing is, I got a letter from my mum, the social worker, a good man, my final social worker, uh, gave me this letter. He said, somebody did love you. And it was a letter from my mother in 1967, shortly after I was born, pleading me, for me back from the social worker to whom she'd given me to, to have me fostered for a short period of time, who'd given me to foster parents and who'd named me after himself. Okay? He didn't tell my mum that. So my mum wrote to him asking him, uh, for, my, for the address of my foster parents. She said, how can I get Lem back? I want him to be with his own people, his own colour. I don't want him to face discrimination. That might seem like a normal thing for some black uh, woman from uh, Ethiopia to say, but my mum didn't come to England thinking it was a bad place. She came to England from a country which has its own king, the Emperor Haile Selassie at the time, yeah. to another uh, um, imperial structure, 
that has the Queen, who was a friend of the Emperor's. So for her to mention, I, to, to say, I don't want him to face discrimination, means that she'd face discrimination. Yeah. For her, yeah. for her to say, I want him to be with his own colour, his own people, means that somebody has said to her in some way, shape or form that his own people aren't the right people to be with. And I, I got a picture of her as well, this 21-year-old woman. In fact, the first time I got a picture of, from her was when I was 21 myself, seeing her when she was 21, when she came to England. Uh, yeah, so, I, yeah, I received the letter, the full letter, and... Um, it's in the book as well, I think, the letter. Yeah, yeah, it is. I want to make sure that we talk about the times when you have projected forwards and used and transferred these experiences into something healing for yourself and other people, of course, which you've been doing your entire adult life. Was there a moment for you as an adult writing poetry and reciting poetry and kind of being noticed? Was there a, a kind of epiphany moment for you when you thought, I can do this for my whole life and I can do this as a career and I can help people? I knew it from very early on. So I was 12, 13, 13, 14 at school. And that's, I, I got a uh, book of poems uh, called Mersey. Yes. Mersey, yes. I always get it wrong. It's Mersey Beat, Mersey Sound, Mersey Beat. And um, yeah, anyway, I just always knew. I mean, to me, it was a given when I was at school that I was going to be a poet, even though I didn't know what a poet was, except for somebody who writes poetry. And sort of that came to pass. There was no plan B, folks. <laughs> and I've made documentaries and gone back to interview people. I've gone back to the children's homes. There was one cleaner, and she said, uh, oh, I remember you. Sit, sat right in each corner with pieces of paper, and you'd scrumple them up and throw it in and start again, blah, 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 blah. But I also wanted to find my family. So my mum wrote to me in 1967, okay, she, to, to try to get me back. She yeah. was in Ethiopia. In 74, there's a revolution in Ethiopia, 73, 74. The emperor is killed. She had to flee the country in 1974 because she was married to the minister and she was from a, like, quite a high family she fled the country. She's never gone back. The country is traumatised from that event. Um, mm. So I start to look for her at 21, which is about 1985. I find her by 1987, and she's working for the United Nations in West Africa, in the Gambia. And I have a picture of her. I, I, I saw where she studied in England, and I fly over to meet her. And the money that I'm using for the plane is money that I've made as a poet. Okay. So the two things came together, my profession as a writer and as a poet and my really big need to find my family. Uh, and, and, I, and I find her. I find did, her. She know you were, did she know you were coming? Yeah, yeah, I, I called her from England. I, while I was on the plane, actually coming over from Senegal, because I went to Senegal first and then got a, a little hot plane to hop over to Gambia, like a lot of people on the plane knew who my mum was because wow. they worked for the UN as well. So, yeah, somebody, the man next to me tells me, why are you going to... He asks me why I'm going, and I tell him, and he says, those people at the back of the plane, they, they, um, they, they know your, uh, your mum. So on the plane going to the Gambia from Senegal, I met people for the first time who knew who my mum was. Wow. There was a yeah, there was a black Mercedes waiting for them 
at the airport in Banjul and uh, I get in it with them and they take me straight to her house in a district called Fajara in um, in the Gambia yeah that was so romantic you know it was dusk and um, you know, all this, this golden wings of kind of dust were flying from the each side of this black panther you know this black old school 1970s Mercedes which just sort of just pelted into this West African sweet-smelling uh, evening. And one by one, the people who worked at the UN, they got dropped off. And they obviously, they asked the driver, you know, would he go see my mum first just to make sure that I was legit? Um, and she had these tall hedges around the house and she had a, a mango tree. It's a very beautiful um, house, like I saw the light out that was outside the porch of the house and there was a pathway towards these hedges and the gate and I heard her shuffle towards the gate and it was dark and it was a beautiful night, the kind of night you could hear crickets and cicadas, are they called? Mm. And this was my first time in Africa as well, so it was so felt so hot and so humid, that's the yeah. word. Yeah. And, uh, and she... Um, yeah, and then I, I hugged her, and she hugged me, and then I hugged her hugging me, and then we, she's, you know, we started to walk up the pathway to the to the door, and in that walk she said, I have a visitor, can we not talk about this? And then I, I walked into the house, and I sat down, and made polite conversation with the visitor as if I was uh, an old friend just passing by. And I, I, I'll never forget, I saw my mum looking at me and me looking, to chatting to the visitor. And that was very surreal. And it was sort of, it was probably a middle-class way for my mum of screaming. Why do you think she needed to scream? <clears throat> because all of it has come down. It's almost as if it's her fault because she has had to carry the load. She's got me coming back to her, asking her what happened. Because she's the one who, when she went back to Ethiopia, she married a minister. The minister was jailed. She had to flee. She went to England. She was impregnated, left on her own. She had a child stolen from her. That's been a seminal event of her growth into adulthood, was me being stolen from her. And then I'm coming back to her, asking her, what happened to me? What did she do? You know, why is it that she has to carry the entire load when it's everybody else who's messed with her. Even her own child is coming back to her to ask her to justify what happened. Because the sense of guilt that she feels, she cannot help but feel. Because, 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 why not? She couldn't go back to her own country. Her father died, which is why she went back to Ethiopia when, when, shortly after I was born, and she, she couldn't get me. You know, she didn't mean to say, can we not talk about this as we walked up that pathway? 
but it's the only way she could see of managing herself through this situation while this woman was staying with her for an extra night. But the, the way it looks through the optics is that she's cruel. Mm. Which has always been the easiest thing to believe. Your mother didn't want you, you know? And I think it's a scream. I think she's not had the opportunity to have a, like a primal scream, you know? In many ways, I've been emotionally privileged, been allowed to, to, to understand some of what's happened to me, been allowed to, uh, you know, been allowed to unpack it. Don't have children myself, so don't have the responsibility of trying to hide them from a story that needed resolving. I've been quite selfish in many ways. I could ask the questions that I'd had, you know, I was got therapy and you know was in a kind of kind industry of the arts mm. um, there was no revolutions happening around me nobody was killed she had to carry that you about your adult change what you think is the biggest change you've made as an adult well look let me say this Annie McManus <laughs> <laughs> I stopped smoking 15 days ago I worked out that I've been smoking for 40 my math is going to be slightly wrong here but for 43 years so exactly since when I went into children's homes that on average I smoke 10 a day could be more actually but I've gone for 10 a day and that works out Oh God! Are you going to try and tell me? No, no, I've, I've done it. I've done it on Twitter. Them. I've done it on Twitter. It's one hundred and fifty-five thousand five hundred and sixty oh, cigarettes. Oh Jesus Christ! So why now? Why did you stop now? Oh man, I've always wanted to stop. Like smoke. I mean, I've I've stopped uh, a few times before and started again, but this time, uh, it's for life. Cigarettes for me were my secret and silent way of hating myself. I'm not saying this for anybody else. You smoke away all you want. I'm not trying to convert mm. anybody else. I mean, it's just my story. But um, they were my way of slowly damaging myself by killing myself, really. I mean, 30 times a day, I would know that I was, a, a, for me, not for anybody else, uh, a loser. You know, I was like, yeah, you know, it makes your teeth go a certain colour. It makes your skin. It's not good for your skin. And you know, in this industry you know your picture your face your is is a thing you know it's to take care of I mean, it's a thing to take care of anyway but mm. you become more aware of the changes anyway i could see that it makes me smell you know like i've got a children's book coming out and i'd have to mm. sit down with four-year-old children and, and read the book how could i do mm. that if i stink i know what happens they, they smell it like but also it was killing me and also i hate it and also it's an imposition and it takes me away from the moment. I'm dying to get out to have one. I'm dying to do the. It will destroy and does your self-esteem. Yeah. And it did to me. I could say I just put them down and started again. I've been trying to stop for 35 years. There's no person who just puts cigarettes down and says, oh, you know, your Uncle Joe, he just put his cigarettes down and he stopped smoking forever. Yeah, but if you think about how long he's been trying to stop smoking, really. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. did he first say to himself, I wish I'd give up? That's when it begins, the, the stopping. So yeah. 
I feel like I've given myself a gift and a lease of life. What I do is every day, like if I want a cigarette or if I feel like I should get one, I say, if you can tell me anything good that's going to come from this having a cigarette, mm. then you can go and buy them. Lem, your perception or your, your relationship with the word care. Yeah. So what you've just described there is you making a conscious decision to care for yourself. Yeah, oh gosh, yeah. How, how, how has your relationship with that word changed over the years? That's really nice what you just said. Mm. That's really nice what you just said. I mean, you could see my story and I, I see my story and I think, okay, well, I'm probably not the best person to take care of myself uh, or others even. But we are kind of miracles, you know, I think, all of us. You know, you give a person a very small amount of what they need and they will make it last as much as they can. And hopefully we all get to realise that there is something out there in the world that is bigger than all of us and it's what makes people dance to music, it's what makes people cry to music, it's what makes people determined, it's what makes people give up. There's something out there that's bigger than all of us that is kind of taking care of business. I'm not religious, but I do believe that there is like a higher power out there and that you can talk to it. And whether it's a, a tree, <laughs> whether it's the sunshine or whether it's just listening to your child's heartbeat or listening to their breathing or it's just shutting up and listening to um, the world as it happens, properly listening. If you're lucky enough to be able to tune into that, then you you started to find out about what it is to care for yourself. Um, thank you from the bottom of my heart for being so generous and open and allowing us to hear your story. I really, really appreciate your time on on changes today. Thank you. Thank you, Annie McManus. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to Lem Sisse for that conversation, which I will never forget. His children's book comes out Friday, the 24th of February. It's called Don't Ask the Dragon. His memoir is called My Name is Why. Please go and get that. It is incredible. Also look out for his books of poetry. And he has an exhibition called Superman Was a Foundling at the Foundling Museum, which goes on all the way till December of this year. If you need help or have been affected or know someone who has been affected by the topics raised in this episode, then the Samaritans can be reached on 116123. And check the show notes for details outside the UK and Ireland. Right, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and please share this podcast far and wide to anyone who you think will find it useful or find it enlightening. I will be back next Monday with a very different conversation with a very different person. The joys of changes. Mel C, yes, Sporty Spice is going to be on changes. Really excited for you to hear that combo I have with her. Thank you for listening. Changes is produced by Louise Mason. See you next time. Thank you and goodbye. The children are calling. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.